0: 3, 2, 1, hello and welcome to There Will Be Bugs, an insect podcast created to enlighten listeners about the surprising world of entomology. I'm one of your hosts, Ben. And I'm Zilla. And today we're going to be discussing the cooperative extension. Um, this has got brought, this has been brought up a few times in previous episodes. Yeah, I feel like you talk about it a lot, but I don't actually really know what it is. Yeah. And I I imagine there's a lot of people out there that don't really know what it is. Um, so I have worked for the cooperative extension the last six months. I was at Cornell's cooperative extension, kind of adjacent. I wasn't an extension agent, but I was a tech for the IPM department, so I've, been involved with extension, but I didn't really know about the history of the cooperative ex- extension. So I wanted to, um, kind of address that and do a little research on that. Uh, so this episode is going to be a little different than, uh, previous episodes. It's just going to be me. This is kind of a scripted ec- episode. So I'm just going to be talking about the, the history of the cooperative extension, what it is and, um, And, yeah, it's just going to be me. You're going to do kind of a deep dive instead of us having a conversation. Exactly. So um, without... uh, The week off for me. (laughs) (laughs) So I guess we'll uh, just dive into it now. Today I'm going to be talking about the history of the Cooperative Extension in the United States. You may have heard of the Cooperative Extension System, and you may have used their services before, but the Extension Service has a long background. The Cooperative Extension System is a nationwide educational and outreach network that works to educate citizens in the pursuit of economic success, ecological sustainability, and social well-being. It was originally designed to assist farmers, but it has been adapted to provide materials and information for all people. Some of the services provided include information regarding farming and food production, pest management, parenting and family life, child health and human nutrition, community resilience, financial security, and economic vitality. Not only that, but the Extension System is committed to extending research and driving innovations aimed at continuing the success of food systems, conservation efforts, and human health. With education and outreach as a cornerstone of the Extension Service, anyone can find materials that are relatable to their daily lives and Extension employees are dedicated to the service of others. Every state has an Extension program that represents a partnership between the USDA and a land-grant college within that state. With approximately 3,000 counties in the United States, There is a local extension office in most of them. The extension system finds its roots in the early 1800s, after the Industrial Revolution, when farmers started forming clubs and societies to work together to improve productivity. In 1819, a journal titled American Farmer published achievements and production methods from farmers who reported on their progress, hoping to network farmers over a larger range. There was a cultural push in the mid-1800s for higher education to be more inc- inclusive of individuals pursuing business and industrial careers such as farming and land management. In 1859, the Morrill Act, named after sponsor Justin Smith Morrell of Vermont, was passed by Congress but lost traction after it was vetoed by President Democrat James Buchanan, after he reasoned higher education is a matter of states' rights. The Morrill Act was resurrected in 1861 after the outbreak of the Civil War and was signed into law in 1862 by President Abraham Lincoln. In essence, the Morrill Act allocated land to states based on the amount of Congress members that the state held. 69 universities across the country would ultimately be founded under the 1862 Morrill Act. After the passage of the Morrill Act, there was still resistance among farmers against book learning. Farmers' institutes rapidly gained popularity in the New England states and spread westward in the 1880s. These institutes had lecture series that traveled from location to location to teach practical, hands-on farming skills. Institutes were organized at the state level and demonstrated different degrees of collaboration with their state universities. Whether it be colleges hosting classes for farmers or just the sharing of publications, state universities started having an active role in the education of non-student farmers. In 1887, President Grover Cleveland signed into law the Hatch Act, which provided federal funds to state land-grant colleges to create agricultural experimental stations. The Hatch Act provided colleges with the real estate and capital to conduct agricultural research and train professionals devoted to scientific exploration. However, The partnership between college experimental stations and farmers' institutes became a double-edged sword. Institutes put strain on experimental stations because the farmers' institutes increasingly demanded more services and information from experimental stations, and this started to interfere with the station's research activities. In the early 1900s, the Office of Experiment Stations started to leverage the Department of Agriculture for more money to support Farmers Institutes. At the time, the number of people attending Farmers Institutes was 80 times greater than that the number of students studying Agricultural Sciences at land-grant colleges. The money started to trickle in slowly at first, but it was a sign of good faith that the Department of Agriculture was committed to the education of farmers. In 1903, John Hamilton was assigned the duty of Farmers Institute Specialist in the Office of Experimental Stations. His duties were largely advisory, and it soon became apparent Farmers Institutes were missing a lack of organization and uniform funding state-to-state. To combat this problem, each state elected a representative for their Farmers Institute and an executive committee comprised of John Hamilton, W.W. W. Miller, and W.C. Lada, was formed. The committee started to look into a cooperation between the Farmers Institutes and the Department of Agriculture. Another problem facing the Farmers Institutes in the early 1900s was a lack of skilled institute lecturers. The Office of Farmers' Institutes pledged to improve lecture quality by securing the best available lecturers at the time and creating a standardized syllabus for illustrated lectures. The office took it one step further by having experiment stations supply lecturers with an updated bulletin from the station. However, progress was still slow. Colleges were limited in their seminar topics and did not have sufficient staff to create courses for institute workers. Institutes started testing new methods to distribute materials and hold lectures. Trains were equipped with lecture materials and acted as traveling billboards. This strategy hit its apex in 1911 when a total of 71 educational trains carried more than 700 lectures to 28 states. During this time, farmers' institutes were working as the informal field agents for agricultural education, but it wouldn't last much longer. In 1914, President Woodrow Wilson signed the Smith-Lever Act. The Smith-Lever Act established a legal association between the USDA and land-grant colleges and allocated funds for a formal extension service. The Act had provisions for professional Extension agents that would provide instruction and demonstrations to the public. The Act divided the funding between the federal, state, and county levels. Because Extension agents became the instructors for land-grant colleges and their experimental stations, farmers' institutes soon became obsolete. Having dedicated Extension agents that could distribute the information to the public allowed research stations to go back to focusing on more research. The Cooperative Extension honeymoon would be short-lived as the world plunged into war. The United States officially joined World War I on April 6, 1917, but was an important supplier of money, supplies, and raw materials to the United Kingdom and France leading up to the declaration of war by President Woodrow Wilson. The saying goes that an army marches on its stomach, and the United States had almost 5 million troops served during the course of World War I. In response to the war, the U.S. started ramping up its production of wheat, increasing wheat acreage from 47 million acres annually in 1913 to 74 million acres in 1919. Since wheat was largely reserved for export to Europe, U.S. citizens saw a paradigm shift from a wheat-based diet to a new cereal grain, corn. Not only that, but the Cooperative Extension worked with 4-H clubs to promote food production and conservation. People were taught how to grow food on their land as well as how to can, dry, and preserve foodstuffs. To fill the void left by so many agricultural workers when the U.S. joined the war, the USDA and colleges started training women to work the land. Barnard College in New York City had the most influence in creating the Women's Land Army in America by offering agricultural classes and camps to teach farming. People who joined the Women's Land Army were instituted an eight-hour workday and were paid the same wage as male laborers. Although the Women's Land Army was dismantled after the war in 1920, the organization helped draw attention to the suffrage movement. Although World War I was officially over on November 11th, 1918, the Cooperative Extension's battle on the home front was not over. The 1920s is commonly coined the Roaring Twenties, but most of the world, including the United States, experienced an economic recession. The American farmer had to make each dollar stretch further than ever before. Although the public was still facing hard times, the Cooperative Extension system was seeing a boom era. The cooperative system had more volunteers than ever before and because of the influx of volunteers, extension programs were able to incorporate programs such as rural sociology, child development, public affairs, and cultural aspects such as drama and music. Agents worked with farmers to promote efficient production and marketing. This renaissance would not last long though as the 1930s brought some of the worst economic and social turmoil in its history. On October 24, 1929, the New York stock market had the largest sell-off of shares in United States history. There was a lot of factors that contributed to the stock market crash of 1929, and there was numerous economic and social effects of the crash. Consumerism in the United States came to a halt, and prices for agricultural products plummeted. As farmers started to plow up more land to harvest more crops just to pay their mortgages, a storm was on the horizon. In the 1930s, severe drought swept over the Midwest and southern Great Plains. As crops began to die and wind swept over the land, massive dust storms wrecked the land. Vast amounts of once-fertile soil was swept up into the air, and an estimated 35 million acres of land was made unusable to farmers. The USDA and Extension Service up to this point was mainly in the pursuit of helping farmers to be productive and efficient. In retrospect, it's easy to see how previous farming methods helped contribute to the extensive amounts of soil erosion during the Dust Bowl, but the droughts of the 1930s were an anomaly not faced by farmers before. Nevertheless, new farming techniques would be required to salvage any remaining land. President Franklin D. Roosevelt took office on March 4, 1933. Feeling the pressure of the Great Depression, Roosevelt quickly went to work implementing his series of economic programs that would be collectively known as the New Deal. Areas that Roosevelt felt needed particular attention was rural America. Roosevelt felt the only way America would get out of the Great Depression was to revive farmers and upturn product prices. Roosevelt created the Resettlement Administration, which relocated struggling rural farmers to plan communities the rural electrification administration which provided loans for the installment of electricity to rural areas the civilian conservation corps which provided jobs for young men to help support their family by improving infrastructure and the agricultural adjustment act of 1933 which resulted in the government buying produce and paying farmers subsidies not to plant on their land. The Agricultural Adjustment Act of 1933 was designed to raise prices for commodities to give farmers fair prices for their products. Congress implemented the Soil Erosion Service and the Prairie States Forestry Project in 1935, which employed local farmers to plant trees as windbreaks across the Great Plains and developed farming practices to help prevent soil erosion. The Cooperative Extension Service acted as the conduit between these new programs and the farmers they were designed to help. Extension staff educated farmers on new farming techniques and how to implement these programs. Even though the country was facing an economic depression, With the peak unemployment rate reaching 25%, the Extension Service increased its staff numbers by almost 3,000 people compared to the 1920s. Ultimately, it was the Second World War that brought the U.S. out of the Great Depression, but another World War would mean the Extension Service would face resource shortages again. Extension staff allocated most of their time to educating the public about dealing with shortages and rationing food and commodities. 600,000 neighborhood leaders were trained to recruit families to help tend Victory Gardens, which provided produce for the community. The Extension Service also broadened its support to hold meetings where the public could discuss issues of war and the nation's defense. Post-World War II, the nation witnessed a technological boom. Even though the number of farms decreased in the following decades, the productivity of farms greatly increased. Extension agents were tasked with introducing farmers and ranchers to the new technologies available. Pure rural farming started to combine with an industry marketing complex, and Extension agents were faced with promoting an understanding of national and international issues influencing farmers. Furthermore, as people started giving up farming for a more urban lifestyle, the Extension employees saw a shift in the people they were servicing. Subjects of home economics started to become more of a priority as rural development boomed. Extension employee numbers expanded to over 15,000 employees in 1958. The 1960s and the 1970s in the United States were a time of social turmoil with conflicts growing out of the Vietnam War and the Civil Rights Movement. This objectively changed the Extension Service as Congress started using funding more directly to shift the focus of Extension to encompass low-income people and minorities. New initiatives were mandated to promote nutrition for low-income families and 4-H programs in urban areas. Equal opportunities were instated, promoting the employment of minorities, including women, and people of color in the Extension program, as well as the delivery of program materials to underrepresented people. By 1985, farmers represented only 2.4% of the population. The bulk of Cooperative Extension clients lived in urban areas. Although the Cooperative Extension has a pedigree of servicing rural farmers, it continued to adapt to meet new needs while still serving the people whom it was founded on. To meet the needs of farmers, Extension programs started to include more emphasis on stress and mental health, as well as farm business management. The program also broadened to include more services for family living, community resource development, and natural resources. Today, projects involve family resource management, family communication, elderly health, and home-based businesses. Farmers have not been forgotten, but the needs of the public are shifting and will continue to shift as we face new problems and new developments. What has made the Cooperative Extension so resilient is its capacity to adapt to changing problems. The integration of technology and the internet has made Extension more accessible than ever before. Staff can provide credible information digitally via publications, databases, images, video clips, blogs, social media, and more. Programs and seminars can be held over video but are still exercised in person as well. Local offices continue to employ extension staff, but their knowledge can envelop areas once out of reach due to increasing technological advances. If you have questions for your local office, the first step is to locate your local office. The University of Arkansas has an easy-to-navigate webpage for each state, broken down by counties that will lead you to the nearest office. The webpage will be linked in the episode description. Or you can always search Cooperative Extension Near Me in your web browser search bar. Whether you have questions about what plants will do well in your area, common pest species, plant diseases, or how to keep an apiary, your local Extension office can help. A comprehensive list of topics the Cooperative Extension can assist with would be overwhelming for most people to read, but if you have questions regarding gardening, farming, land management, human health personal finance, or family support, talk to your local agent and they will work with you to get more details and provide you with the information you're looking for. The Cooperative Extension turns 110 years old in 2024 and will continue its pursuit in educating the public. That concludes our episode for today. If you have enjoyed our podcast, please leave us a review and share it with your friends. We don't pay to advertise our podcast, so word of mouth is how we get our podcast out there. If you have any questions or suggestions for future episodes, feel free to contact me. I am at bdkn223 at uky.edu. Thank you for listening, and remember to stay spineless.